The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. This is uh, Ori Hample. Uh, I'm a urologist in the greater Houston area, and I've been practicing for 24 years. Um, I grew up uh, mostly in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. That's where I went to college and medical school at Case Western Reserve University. And then the the computer matching system told me that I was coming to Houston to do my residency at Baylor College of Medicine uh, in general surgery and urology. And uh, during residency, I married a Texan, and they're not portable. So I set up shop in Houston and put up a shingle and proved it was still America and you can go into business for yourself. And several years later, I added a, a partner who trained with me at Baylor and I've uh, been in practice over 24 years here in the Houston area doing general and pediatric urology and the uh, and uh, we've been fortunate to be very busy. And what happened was that uh, in 2010, when uh, there were various uh, health care proposals uh, at the time before uh, the passage of the uh, Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act that we all know as Obamacare, um, my wife uh, of 26 years now, Daniela, was listening to the Dennis Prager show and there was Hal Schurz talking about how doctors need to be involved with uh, protecting uh, the physician-patient relationship. When I got home, uh, she told me that I needed to join this group and listen to these people. So I joined this group, and then I started getting emails that I need to go to Washington. And I didn't want to go to Washington and give up practicing for a day and canceling patients and moving surgeries. But, uh, you know... Um, uh, in our house, my wife tells me I'm the head of the house, and she's the neck that turns the head. So she told me that uh, uh, this is back in early 2010, that if I didn't do something and the healthcare system went in a way that was unfavorable either to us or to the patients or to the country, then our kids 20 years from now would say, Dad, when all this was happening, what did you do? So when she put it that way, I didn't have a choice. So I went over to Washington, and uh, I met uh, Hal Schurz and Scott Barber and a whole slew of other people, uh, many of which uh, uh, you've heard here on the Doctor's Lounge radio show. And uh, ever since then, I've been involved with the fight of protecting the physician-patient relationship and uh, restore, trying to restore and trying to save our best healthcare system in the world and uh, it's been it's been a challenge but uh, I do feel like we're uh, we don't have a choice uh, we, uh, we went to medical school to take care of people and take care of patients and protect uh, them and make them better and make their lives better so we need to continue to strive to do that no matter what so um, we we wish uh, uh, Hal a very speedy recovery, and he'll be back shortly. And uh, uh, 
we have a few topics we want to discuss today. So the main theme of what I want to discuss today is uh, is uh, good intentions and their consequences. And uh, often uh, the good intentions and consequences often have to do with uh, with legislation and governance. And so I'm going to use a few examples of great intentions that end up be, ended up being uh, uh, molded into legislation and law and some of their consequences. Uh, most of the time, those consequences are negative. Sometimes it can be positive. And I think that our, our mission, our job, is to learn from this in order uh, so that we can improve things. So, uh, so welcome to the doctor's lounge. So let's uh, let's move on to the top. The first topic I want to address, and that has to do with uh, drug benefits. So, in the 2000 presidential election, both parties were campaigning on the fact on on the mission on the mission that uh, uh, we need to provide care for our seniors. That sounds great, and I agree with that 100%. Our seniors need to have their health care managed and accessible. And one of the biggest, uh, or at least one of the perceived biggest challenges at the time, was that our senior population needed to have access to prescriptions that they can afford. And both parties campaigned on this in the 2000 election. And in 2003, there was a bipartisan effort, and we basically passed Part D of Medicare. And Part D stands for drugs. Um, and uh, the, the promise here and the good intention was that physicians, that patients should not have to choose between medications and food or medications and lodging. Uh, they should be able to afford the medications that their doctors prescribe so they can maintain their health and live uh, a good productive lives, even when they're retirees. And this was great, and a great idea. And, uh, of course, um, as we often see, good intentions often have negative consequences. So the... Uh, uh, Medicare Part D was enacted as part of the Med, uh, Medicare Modernization Act of 2003. And, of course, it didn't take effect right away. It took three years to get take effect in January 1 of 2006. And so the question is, what happened as a result of that? And I'm going to take this back to a patient's story because we know that there's legis- there, there are ideas about how how we need to govern and how we need to take care of our patients and how we need to manage the uh, healthcare economy and the healthcare system in our country. But what's important to me as a practicing physician is that I'm dedicated to my patients. I took the Hippocratic oath to first do no harm. And I feel that I need to be my, my patient's foremost advocate. So what happened... Uh, but I was practicing since 1998. That's when I finished my residency, and that's when 
I went into practice. And I practiced on the, on the east and southeast side of Houston. And uh, this is uh, an older part of Houston. So as a urologist, I take care of a lot of seniors and a lot of Medicare patients. So before 2006, before Medicare Part D uh, went into effect, how were patients getting drugs? How were patients getting medications? Well, many of my patients worked in various jobs in, in this part of town, in the chemical industry and in the refining industry. And many of them, as part of their retirement, had um, in health insurance. Most of that, at that point in time, was a PPO, uh, PPO health insurance. But because they were retired and they were on Medicare, the PPO acted as, uh, had two functions. One function was it acted as a Medigap, and it went to cover, or toward covering the 20% and the deductibles that their Medicare Part A and B did not cover. And the second part is that most of them had drug benefits. And those drug benefits were actually very good. And uh, the chemical industry and the refining industry and these patients and their unions made sure that they had decent benefits. But then there was a population of patients in Medicare who, who did not have a secondary insurance. They had Medicare only. So they were responsible for their Medicare deductible. And when I went into practice, it was only 100 bucks. We know it's uh, multiple to that now. And, uh, but the coinsurance was 20%. But then they didn't have drug coverage. So what happened is, as often happens in the United States of America and our great country, is the private sector stepped in and free enterprise stepped in. And the first, uh, there was the main, uh, the largest uh, main corporation that stood in to provide drug benefits for seniors was Walmart. And they created what was called their $4 list which was really a $4 list, $10 list. And they had literally hundreds of medications on this list. Medications for diabetes and high blood pressure. The urologist medications for a large prostate. And, um, and these medications were generic. And so for you to get it, for my patients to get a 10 month, uh, a one month supply of generic medication that was on, that was on the list, uh, it cost $4 a month or $10 for three months. And in all honesty, this was very affordable for the patients. And of course, the latest and greatest medications, the ones with the least side effects and the, and the best efficacy, weren't on that list. But there were plenty of medications on that list that took care of most of the major medical problems that most patients encountered. Again, I'm using the word most because when we have an ideal system, we think that we need to take care of everybody. We want to take care of everybody. But most solutions don't take care of everybody. And any solution that takes care of everybody then starts to have a lot of chinks in its armor. We're going to get to that, to one of those chinks in a minute. So this, this was a story from a couple years ago by now. And this is a patient of mine in his, in his late 80s. Um, I think now he's in his early 90s. And this is a very nice man. He worked in the chemical plant. He, he was a veteran. He was retired. And um, a lot of medical problems. He's had prostate cancer and a large prostate, which I was managing. Uh, his prostate cancer was in remission. He was on hemodialysis. He was getting dialysis three times a week. But this guy 
was very functional. He was driving. He was taking care of his house. He uh, okay. Are you ready to take a break? And he need he came to me and he needed a refill on his medication. And we're going to take a break, and I'm going to tell you what happened with that refill in a minute. Stop taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the show. So to recap, I'm going to discuss how my patient, who's around 90 years old, came to the, to the office for a regular visit. He was doing well, and all he asked me for was a refill on his prostate medication. The medication is called the Cardura, or the generic is Duxazepin. Takes it every evening and been doing so for decades. Been working well for him. He's urinating great. So he said, Doc, please give me a prescription. I need a handwritten prescription for my medicine so that I can take it to the VA. I said, well, thank you for your service. Uh, uh, you served your country. Your country should definitely provide you health care. I absolutely think that that is the right thing to do. But I don't understand because... You're here in Pasadena, Texas, and the VA hospital's a good 25, 30 minutes away, and you have to negotiate at your age of 90 some pretty significant freeways uh, in Houston, all under construction, of course. And um, just to take this prescription to the VA so you can get it filled. I said, why don't, why don't you just take this prescription here to a local pharmacy it's uh, this medication's on the four dollar, ten dollar list. The three month supply should cost you ten bucks. And he said, "No, that used to be the case before Part D Medicare came along. But since Medicare changed, what happened was I used to get my medicine for ten dollars a month. As a matter of fact, I used to get it for less than ten dollars a month because before Part D of Medicare went into effect." I had a PPO insurance from my retirement, which he still has. But as soon as Medicare provided drug benefits, all the t- retirees, 
I don't want to say all, let's just say most of the retirees that had a PPO plan that also included drug coverage, and this is a PPO that was really acting as a secondary insurance and a drug benefit plan, they all removed their pharmacy benefits. Why? Because patients had pharmacy benefits through the government, through Medicare. So there was no reason for them to provide pharmacy benefits because the patients already had pharmacy benefits. So this is what happened to the guy's pharmacy benefits. He went from paying almost nothing uh, for his medication, and had he not had this insurance, it would have cost him only 10 bucks for three months, or $40 a year, which is fairly affordable. And what happens now, he says, if he takes it to the pharmacy, and he has his Part D plan, um, then his share is about 36 to $38 for a three-month supply. And this got me thinking. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's your out-of-pocket? And he said, yes. And so let's take a step back and do some math. So we're going to take an aside here. So he's getting the same medication, and he's been getting the same medication for a couple decades. And this medication used to be sold for $10 for three months on a cash basis by Walmart and then Walgreens and other pharmacies because they all copy each other to compete in free market. And that's, that was the patient's cost. And those pharmacies must have been making money or else they wouldn't have been selling the medications at that price. And we know that they were making money because these medications, they're costing them as pennies of pills. And, um, and I'm sure they were happy because the patients were coming into the store and buying other stuff anyway. So it wasn't a lost leader because they weren't losing money, but it was beneficial to them. So now that the patient has Part D benefits, what happens is is that his cost goes up to $36, $38 for a three-month supply. And we, we know that the program is also paying the pharmacy. Let's suppose that it's copay and coinsurance 50%. And we know that's not the case because we know that under this program, the patient's cost is supposed to be in the lower percentages, say 25%. So if he's, let's say ballpark, if he's paying say 35 bucks for three months and he's paying a quarter of his, and that's the coinsurance. You multiply that times four and that's $140. So the pharmacy is making $140. They're making 35 bucks times three, 75% of 140, from Medicare Part D, which is the taxpayers are paying for that. Because remember, he's a retiree. He never contributed to the Part D system except what he's paying with his current monthly premiums, which we know is not enough to sustain the program, and therefore we know that this was not passed as a budget-neutral program, and the initial program, uh, I believe, required around 400, uh, 400 million or uh, dollars or, or per year to, to sustain it initially, outside of what premiums were being paid. And we know that has gone up. So the, the taxpayers, we, all of us, um, and, and also the, the seniors that are paying for the drug benefit every month, are covering. Um, Three quarters of $140. The patient, the patient himself is covering one quarter of that $140. 
which is thirty, you know, thirty-five bucks. In his case, you know, about thirty-six to thirty-eight bucks. And so the pharmacies and these larger corporations that were selling, they're selling these generic drugs, which they obtained for pennies a pill. They used to be very happy for years selling that same prescription for ten bucks cash. No insurance processing, no hassles, ten bucks cash. And now they're getting 140, 150 bucks between all the sources of payments for the same medication, which is now 15 years even more generic than it was in that. And the patient is still getting the medication. The cost to the patient has now more than tripled, almost quadrupled. The cost to the taxpayer, the Medicare system, has gone to up orders of magnitude because before the Medicare system, taxpayers weren't covering this medicine. It was covered either by the private insurance or it was covered by the patient paying 10 bucks for three months. So we created a program that is not budget neutral because budget neutrality was never required in it that cost the seniors a monthly premium above their Medicare that uh, is not inconsequential for people on fixed income, like this guy who's 30 years retired. Um, and then we have the cost uh, to the taxpayers that didn't exist before the program was passed. And I'm, I came to this realization because I did not realize until that moment how much money program is actually costing our retirees and how much it's costing the taxpayers, all of us, that are contributing uh, to the government to take care of its people. And so here we have a program with excellent con- excellent intentions. Let's make sure all the seniors can afford this and can get their medications. And we just made it less affordable for them. Now, I don't want to be completely negative because there's medications that are not generic that this program allows the patients to receive uh, where we know the cost of new and non-generic drugs can be in the orders of $400, $500, $600 per month. So patients are able to get those medications. They still might cost them quite a bit. Uh, I know that many of my patients who are seniors who are on a Part B plan, if they get a name brand medication that is not generic, that's one of the newer drugs, their cost is still going to be around $70, $80 per month or more, um, which is better than four, five, or $600. So yes, this does give access to the latest and greatest medication, uh, as long as they're on a formulary, to our seniors. But what it also did is it made their routine generic medications, which should, which should be cheap and affordable, it's makes them less cheap and less affordable to our seniors. And this is the perfect example of excellent intentions, bipartisan intentions, that are trying to take care of our patients. But by doing so, they're decreasing their access to care, decreasing their access to medication, and on top of everything, um, they cost all of us more. One more little caveat. When we have drug representatives come by and they're selling the new drugs, 
the latest and greatest drugs. They provide us coupons that we can provide our patients. And these coupons make it very affordable for the patient with commercial health insurance uh, to be able to afford medications for maybe, you know, medicine which might be hundreds of dollars per month. They, these coupon systems allow them to be able to afford those medications for five, ten, twenty, thirty dollars a month. Makes it very affordable. The caveat is that patients that are on a Medicare Part D program, patients that are enrolled in Medicare, are not eligible for these coupons. So we have discrimination against the seniors and against the disabled, against the Medicare patients with these coupons coupon system, and this discrimination is, is statutory. It's actually from the federal government. So on the one hand, we are trying to provide affordable medications for patients. On the other hand, those Part D patients, those Medicare patients that pay a premium for their Part D health care coverage, even on medications that are on their formulary that might cost them 80 bucks a month plus, they're not eligible to use those coupons that would rate lower those costs to 25 or 50 or 30 bucks a month. And so another unintended consequences, or maybe it was an intended consequence, but at least it was unintended to the populace that supported the idea of allowing seniors to get uh, access to medication. And the consequences, we uh, make these expensive medications even less accessible to the seniors because they cannot use all right. Time that for a break. Medicare. So, the uh, next uh, topic that I wanted to cover was another famous law that we live every day. And that is the law of HIPAA. Time for a break. So, we will discuss that in a few minutes. On August 8, 2022, in violation of the Fourth Amendment, the FBI performed a most egregious search of a former president's home. The Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution provides that the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched, and the persons or things to be seized. The Fourth Amendment originally enforced the notion that each man's home is his castle, secure from unreasonable searches and seizures of property by the government. We must take a stand, and take back our country. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge Radio Show. I want to very briefly touch on a law that we all know and most of us hate. 
and that law is HIPAA, H-I-P-A-A. And it was a law that was passed and signed into law in uh, 1996. And it was uh, it was a bipartisan law. And it had a wonderful intention. Now, when you ask, when we ask somebody, what does HIPAA stand for? And people go, well, I don't really remember. And I'm like, okay, what does the P stand for? Everybody says, almost everybody says, well, it's privacy, right? I mean, HIPAA has to do with the privacy of health information. And that's when I tell them, no, that's not what the P stands for. HIPAA stands for Health Information Portability and Accountability Act. Portability? Portability. Well, the intent of HIPAA, and this is now a long time ago, <laughs> 19, uh, 1996, so this is, you know, 125 years ago. And the intent of HIPAA was to protect healthcare coverage when employees lost or changed their jobs. It is, the intent of that law was to make health insurance belong to the patient and make that insurance portable. So if a patient has an opportunity for a better job and they switch jobs, they'll be able to take their insurance with them. It will be portable. Or when a patient gets fired, that employee could still have their health care coverage and take it with them. Well, that was the intent of the law. And I have countless stories, and, and they're all sad, where a patient either was downsized and lost their job and was in search for another job and maybe found another job, or a patient found a better opportunity, a way to advance his family or her family, and uh, to be able to earn more money, have a better position, advance their career. But when, when that patient made that switch, that employee made that switch to the new corporation, there was a, a waiting period, 60 days, 90 days, until their insurance kicked in. And I can't tell you how many times I have been in a situation as a physician in the last 24 years when I have a patient that comes to the emergency room with a kidney stone, with some sort of infection, with some sort of a problem, and they get a CAT scan, and then we find a kidney cancer. And they had just changed jobs, and they're in the waiting period, and their health insurance has yet to kick in, and now they have a kidney stone, and now they're in pain, and now they need care. And we know that they can get care in the United States of America. But affording that care becomes very unaffordable if you don't have insurance because we don't really have a free market health care system right now. And HIPAA was supposed to prevent this. And this was in 1996. So that was the intent of HIPAA. But what happened with HIPAA, the other intent of HIPAA was standardization of health information because HIPAA, the I stands for, the, the HI stands for health information. Uh, and part of that portability and health information part was a standardization of the healthcare claim form because in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, the claim submission 
from the physician from the hospital to the health insurer, or the, be it private or the government, involves the initial, what was called the HICFA 1500 form, Healthcare Finance Administration, which became CMS, now it's called the CMS 1500 form. And that form has all those very difficult questions that you have to answer in blanks, like first name, last name, marital status, um, address. And then it has the harder parts, which is the procedure codes and diagnostic codes. And different insurers and different governmental healthcare providers, be it Medicare or Medicaid, were requiring different information to go in different blanks. And so HIPAA standardized that. It created the standardized health, informa- health information submission form for insurance purposes. And because it added that, then the government decided, well, we need to have this information needs to be secure. So there was security. Then there needed to be private, so there's privacy. And so here was a simple little law whose intent was, let's just protect the healthcare coverage for the workers of America when they change jobs by choice or not by choice, so they can still have their insurance. And uh, and instead, this became this monstrous law that included security and protection and for privacy and all these kind of things. The law was so complicated that it took over 10 years to implement all of its phases, and uh, over 10 years. And it has everyday negative consequences that we deal with every day. First of all, it created an entire industry, an entire HIPAA administration industry, uh, businesses and consultants and lawyers and uh, governmental regulators and uh, methods of penalizing violators. Uh, it created an entire industry that's sur- surrounded around HIPAA. And of course, anytime you create that, you create costs. And that cost somehow has to be paid by somebody. It has to be paid by the provider, the physician, the hospital, the medical practice. It gets paid for by the patient. It gets paid for by the government, which is the taxpayer and all of us. And, but that's not the main unintended consequences that I want to discuss. Very briefly. So this happens all the time. We'll have an elderly patient who'll get hospitalized and they're, and they're acutely ill. And, uh, and then the patient's son or the patient's daughter will call, and they may not be in town. Supposed to be, you know, they might be across the country, and they're concerned about their family member. And they'll call us, and they'll say, "We want to know about so and so, and what's going on with their health care." And I say, "I can't tell you." And they say, "Why can't you tell me? It's my father. It's my loved one." And because of HIPAA, I have to have an information release, or I'm violating the law. And I tell them, I'm really sorry. And I am sorry. I want to be able to discuss their family member situation with them. But I can't because the law prevents me from doing so without the appropriate documentation. And if they're not local or if they're working or if they're unavailable to come physically or to provide those forms or there wasn't a preemptive planning to provide medical powers of attorney, which we need to have on file, then this slows down the care of the patient. Because, you know, I, I may want to know important pieces of history that the patient can't provide for me when they're acutely ill, and the family members can, but if they're not physically there to do that and to volunteer that, uh, I'm forbidden from discussing the care of the patient. 
the other thing that happens is patients get referred to me, for example, this patient, patients get referred to me with, for example, a kidney tumor. Happened this week. A patient came to me that had a kidney tumor. They were sent to me from another physician with a kidney tumor. I said, well, I need to see that report. Well, I didn't order it, and I can't get access to it. And the patient fills out a release form, and we fax it over, and it takes time, sometimes days. It's reasonable that it should take days to get health information. The problem is the patient's in my office now, and they're anxious, and they want to know. They came about this tumor, and they want to know, is it cancer, is it not cancer? Do I need surgery? Do I not need surgery? I don't have that information. I don't have the information. The reason I don't have it is because of HIPAA. And HIPAA was not intended to do that. And HIPAA, in, in HIPAA, there are words that say that this is not meant to hinder care, that this is meant only to protect the patient. But the way things get interpreted is that this protection prevents access to information for the sake of privacy. But what it does is it slows down care. It increases patient's anxiety. Eventually, we get that information. Most of the time, it doesn't cause harm to the patient. But sometimes, we need to know, for example, if the patient on blood thinners is going to bleed to death if we take them to the operating room. But if the patient is in an acute, bad state and cannot provide us that information, we can't talk to the family. It's a problem. So, yes, there are workarounds that we use, and yes, there's all kinds of documentation we can do, but it slows down care. And it causes us, as providers and as hospitals, it causes increased costs. And as society, it causes increased costs. And you know what? Was this all necessary, all this privacy legislation? When I was in medical school in Cleveland in the 1980s and 1990s, I was taught that you shouldn't discuss patients in the elevator. If it's patient information, make sure you do it aside and privately. I was taught that in medical school over 30 years ago. And I was taught that in residency, that we shouldn't be discussing cases in the elevator. That was the way it was put. Do not discuss patients in the elevator. And really, that was the intent of HIPAA, keep privacy of the patient's health information and protect it and secure it. Did we really need this legislation? We needed the legislation for the portability of the insurance, but the legislation didn't do that because we still have the same issue. And again, here we are. We have a law that had a tremendously positive intent. And that original intent never came to fruition, but instead we have a tremendous bureaucracy, tremendous expense, and it hinders the care to our patient. And that's kind of the bottom line. What really gets me going is not even necessarily increased costs. I'm mad as a taxpayer because I don't want to pay more money and I don't want to pay more taxes. And I think that my taxes should be used efficiently and properly and for the good of our society. But that's not what really gets me. What really gets me is when patients get hurt, when patients have to share more of a cost that they don't need to, like with the Part D of Medicare. Or when patients' care is slowed down, it's hindered. Or when I don't have access to information and so I can't 
provide all the information that I want to provide and I should be able to provide to the patient. And that increases the patient's anxiety. It increases their stress. The patient comes the patient comes to me because they think they might have a cancer. And if I can't give if I don't have all the information to be able to counsel them through that and reassure them through that, like, no, it's not a cancer. This tumor is benign, we're just gonna follow it. Or this is a cancer, but look, it's small, it's contained, we can cure you. I'd love to have that information and be able to dissipate the patient's anxiety. The patient's already in anxiety waiting on his appointment, which might be days or weeks to come to see me. And my job as a physician is to not just, you know, as a surgeon, cut out the cancer or fix the problem or unblock the kidney or take out the prostate or get the patient urinating better, or do the vasectomy or whatever. That's not just my primary job. My primary job is the overall health of the patient, the overall uh, comfort of the patient. My job is to support the patient. My job is to make them feel better. Even if I can't make them feel better, to know that they have what they what is going on, because the fear of the unknown and the anxiety of the unknown sometimes is worse than the known, or it definitely makes the situation worse. And HIPAA definitely makes it more difficult for me to take care of, comfort, and educate my patients. Eventually we get through it, and eventually the forms get signed, and eventually the information is obtained. But this delay really causes unnecessary expense and unnecessary anxiety, and it should. All right. The last thing I want to touch on this show, and we'll start uh, We'll start now, and then we'll have another break, and then we'll finish it up and wrap it up. Let's go to a break. And uh, I will discuss that in a minute uh, after we hear these few words. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. Veteran-owned America's Web Radio endorses and supports Dr. Rich McCormick for Georgia's 6th District, U.S. House of Representatives. As a decorated Marine helicopter pilot, and now an emergency room doctor who served on the front lines against COVID-19, Dr. Rich McCormick has never been afraid of a fight. Whether it's communist China abroad, or the radical left in America, Rich knows the next fight facing America is to stop socialism. He's all in. Vote for Rich McCormick. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, 
please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the tail end of the Doctor's Lounge radio show. I want to discuss one more topic today. And I am going to introduce an initialist. And if you're a physician and you train before the year 2009, you've heard of this initialism. But the vast majority of Americans have not heard of the initialism I'm about to tell you about. And I bet you that the vast majority of younger practicing physicians, definitely all the medical students and residents now, probably haven't heard this initialism either. And the initialism is Adka Van Dimmels. Adka Van Dimmels. Adka Van Dimmels was drilled into my head when I was a third-year medical student uh, in Cleveland at Case Western University. And Adka Van Dimmels stands for the order in which we write admission orders. So when we admitted a patient to the hospital, we did not have electronic medical records. We had this specialized technology. It was called paper and pen. And when we had paper and pen, and those papers said physician orders at either the top or the bottom, and they had lines, and had a place for date and time. And then we had to write the orders of the, that resulted in the care that the patient was going to receive while in the hospital. And that convendimal stood for admit, and then we had to write admit to observation or to inpatient, to ICU, to the regular surgical floor or medical floor, then deals diagnosis. Condition was, you know, guarded, good, fair, etc. A stood for allergies, so we had to know what they were allergic to. V was vital signs. You know, how often they should be checked. Once a shift, every four hours, every hour if they were critically ill. Activity, are they supposed to walk or supposed to be in bed rest? And is nursing, all the stuff the nurses had to do. Did they need a Foley catheter? Did they need a nasogastric tube? Did they need spirometry? Did they need to be turned so they didn't get uh, the cubid eye or a bed source? Um, did... Uh, um, uh, uh, did they need intake and output measured, and how closely, and how often? Did they have a drain, and when it should be drained? And then N and then D stood for diet. Are they supposed to eat or not eat? Diabetic diet, regular diet, liquid diet. I stood for IV. What IV fluids were they supposed to be on? M is medications. We we're supposed to order the medications. Uh, L is labs. What labs do we need to order? And then S stood for special. Whatever special things they needed. Um, uh, notify the doctor for this or notify the doctor for that or notify the family of this or remind the patient to do that. And so what happened was that the physician, the admitting doctor, the admitting medical the medical student that wrote the orders, the residents that wrote the orders, in today's society, the nurse practitioner, physician assistant that wrote the orders, they had to go through the exercise of thinking. Yes, thinking. They had to actually think, why am I admitting the patient? What do I need to feed them? 
what medicine should they be on? And, and what happened was, 2009 happened. And we had an economic downturn in 2007 to 2009. And Congress and President Obama at the time um, decided that we needed to save the financial condition of our country. And we passed the stimulus law, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009. And this act cost $780 billion in the first year. And, but wait a minute, we're talking about health care. And this was a shovel-ready job. It was supposed to put build roads and fix bridges. Yes, and spend hundreds of millions of dollars putting up signs all over the roads of the country, of our country, that say, this sign is provided for this act. Yeah, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars putting up signs offensive roads that were never fixed. But what does this have to do with health care? Well, one of the biggest expenses and line items in this law was Section 3000. It looks under Section 3000, or it's really Section 13001. And it is called the HITECH Act, H-I-T-E-C-H Act. And we've discussed this on this show numerous times. But it stands for Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act. High tech. High tech sounds good. We know high tech's good. I mean, we got, uh, you know, Silicon Valley, that's high tech. High tech sounds good. Well, what is high tech? High tech basically means that, it basically means that as a healthcare entity, a physician, a hospital, one needs to get an electronic health record. And that electronic health record needs to do certain things. And he needs to obtain a certain amount of data. In the beginning, it was called an EMR, electronic medical record. And then it became EHR, electronic health record. And it became a system not just for documenting the notes in the chart. It became a system for ordering things. It became a system for placing those orders and, and, and guiding the care of the patient. Now, I'm just going to briefly mention the expense of this law. Because one of the biggest chunks of this law was healthcare. And this is $780 billion. And as many of you know, we have not had a federal budget in well over a decade. And definitely we've not had a federal budget passed since this law was passed. So what does that mean? That when you don't have a federal budget, any program gets an automatic 8% increase from year to year. Whether that 8% is needed or not, whether it was used or not, the, the program has increased 8% per year. So this was $780 billion times 13 years, because this was from 2009, plus the 8% annual increase, which basically is compounding 8% interest. And, you know, we know the, the whole rule of expenses doubling with, or value doubling with a certain interest rate. And it means that this law has cost our country well north of ten trillion dollars. Okay. And the biggest chunk of that is healthcare, this high tech portion. So this high tech portion means that doctors and this really hadn't proven to be doctors because doctors were supposed to get electronic medical records, which cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and 
they were supposed to get money for providing data to the government from the Medicare system. But that money was only like $18,000. And I know many, I did not participate in that. I have an electronic health record. But I didn't want my information to go to the, to the government. I was willing to forego those $18,000. And what happened was, I was right. Because I know so many physicians that got their $18,000. And then later on, the government clawed the $18,000 back for whatever reason. But, they, but now the physician still had the health the healthcare record, the, the electronic medical record, the electronic health record, and all its expenses. And now they had it. And now they were using it. Now they were stuck. And the genie was out of the bottle. And so, on the one hand, we know our national debt is, you know, $30 trillion or something like that. Probably half of that is this law. And a huge part of that, or the majority of that, is the High Tech Act. And so one wonders, why does this one hospital system or that hospital system choose Cerner versus Epic as their electronic health record? And the answer is, not necessarily just because of the efficiency of the system or the interoperability or the communication or the, the efficiency of ordering. A lot of that has to do with its ability to collect data, individual and aggregate data, be able to report that to insurers and the government. And in exchange for that, reporting of health information on all of us, all of we patients, all of us patients, um, and not uh, the entities, specifically hospital systems and large groups, uh, get money. And, um, and this money continues to flow. So, what is the real consequence to patient care? And this is where, this is my thing. My thing is, all right, you know, I got my electronic medical record. Right, is there good about it? Absolutely, absolutely. I get called in the middle of the night about, you know, about a patient of mine in the emergency room, and they're sick, and they're ill, and they've got problems, and they're bleeding. I can log into my office I can uh, from secure uh, system in my home, and I can pull up my electronic health record in my office and I suddenly know all the information that I should know about my patient and I can provide them care. And that is a good thing, okay? It's also a good thing that uh, I back up my information and that if there's a fire, my information is backed up remotely to a different state in our country. And that's a good thing too. But let me tell you about the bad thing. The bad thing is Adka Van Dimmels was forgotten. So, when a patient gets admitted to the hospital, and let me take you way back, way back to Tuesday, two days ago. Two days ago, I had a patient, a patient of mine, a patient with a big kidney stone. She's on my schedule later on this month to blast her kidney stone, and the stone is large enough that I'm, I need to put in, a, I needed to put in a stent, a ureteral stent, so that when the stone fragments try to pass, they don't cause her pain consistent with, uh, the, the uh, birthing of a child without an epidural. And, um, but what happened was that the patient developed pain. And the pain was severe. She showed up in the emergency room. They did a cath scan and her kidney was blocked. And this was early Tuesday morning. And so I told the emergency room, all right, get her admitted. Uh, they said they'll admit her to the hospitalist. And uh, I scheduled her to 
put in a urethral stent at lunchtime. And so on Tuesday, I had a stone for lunch. Uh, and uh, what happened was that I went uh, into the electronic health record of the hospital remotely um, to put in my orders to prepare for surgery. And what happened under automated orders, and that's the problem, this is the admitting physician, the admitting nurse practitioner, the admitting physician assistant. They don't go through the exercise of ADCA Vendimal. They click a standard admission orders, and in those orders are all kinds of things they want patients to have. One minute till end of show. And then what happened was, is the patient was automatically ordered a blood thinner, was ordered heparin, so that she doesn't get blood clots, so she doesn't get a deep vein thrombosis and a pulmonary embolism. The problem is the patient shouldn't be getting blood thinners because the patient is going to surgery, and if you operate on patients with blood thinners, they almost can bleed to death. So this is the unintended consequence of electronic health records. It removes our brain from thinking about the different steps we need to do in patient management. Electronic health records can be helpful, and they can be harmful. Wind it up. So thank you for joining us. And next week, we will have one of our regular hosts. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.